So the message I was going to bring to you today that I was planning on a few weeks ago is not the message I'm actually going to preach this morning. Um, uh, Late in November, I was invited to go uh, speak for the Kenyan Christian Fellowship of America. So I went to KCFA uh, last week, last Sunday afternoon. They have church for like three and a half hours, y'all. And it does not let up. It is like the real deal. Like you're there, like, is it over now? Like three and a half hours in. So those of you who think that like 90 minutes is too long, listen, come to KCFA with me sometime. But they invited me to come and speak there. And it was um, what God started doing was he started speaking something specifically in my heart. It was very intense. And I thought it was just for me personally. And as I began to process through it, it came out in the form of a sermon, not in the terms of something that he might just be talking to me about devotionally. It's been very, very, very challenging in my own life. And I thought initially it was just for that group of people that night. And as I preached it uh, last Sunday throughout this week, it just kept coming back and coming back and changing and deepening and going in a different direction. So I thought, you know, maybe it's also for this group here. So I want to speak to you this week and next week on a, it might seem like a really simple cliche, but I want to talk about the how to's. The title of my message this week and next week is how to live for Christ, how to live for for Christ. I will tell you, you will not have to look far right now to find people who are living for Allah, who are living for Muhammad, who are living for themselves, who are living for power, who are living for glory, for wealth, for learning. If there's ever been a time where living for Christ has become diluted and almost lost and pushed back in a corner, it's now. Friend, you live for something. You just might not know what you're living for. And I want to challenge myself and I want to challenge you to think through carefully what it really means to live for Christ. And to really dig deep into the scripture, there's one particular man in the Bible who writes a lot about it and he is probably, uh, not probably, he is the most detailed description of a converted human being that the Bible has to offer for us, and that is the Apostle Paul. We get his full story in the New Testament from who he was before Christ under the name of Saul, a very hateful, very educated, very powerful, very driven man, hated Christians, hated them, had no problem overseeing their persecution and death. At his hand, Christians were tortured and killed. Then he has a conversion experience with Jesus and his entire life over the next years of his life completely changed. So much so that people run into him have a hard time believing he's not acting. That's how deep his conversion really was. And I want to suggest to you, and I'll talk about this the second week in January, there is a difference between being saved and being converted. I am saved the moment I commit my life to Jesus Christ. I ask him to forgive me of my sins. But in that moment, I'm not totally converted. In that moment, I still have lots of things in my life that don't line up with Jesus. I think not like Jesus. I act and behave not like Jesus. But the process of conversion begins and can get no farther until I'm saved. But the Bible talks about in Romans chapter 12 that the way you know a Christian is by the the conversion of their life. In other words, the testimony that something changed before and after Jesus. I'm afraid most of our churches are filled with people who are saved but not converted. We have enough of Jesus to get to heaven, but not enough to make a real true difference in our life. And our testimony has become diluted and weakened because the world looks at us and says, you're no different than me. You just think you are because you recited a few things. 
I will tell you the life that I'm after, that I crave, is to be deeply, deeply, deeply converted. I don't want to be the Phil that came into the world. I don't want to think the way I used to think. I don't want to act towards people the way I used to act. I don't want to determine my own. I want to be like Christ. And if that's going to happen, I need to be converted. When you convert a fraction to a decimal, it looks entirely different. There's a conversion that takes place. It looks different. It behaves different. It writes different. I need to be deeply, deeply, deeply converted. And guess what? You do too. We all need to be converted in the way that it begins at salvation, but it happens through living for Christ. Paul writes a lot about this. I want to take you to one passage this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. Here's what he writes. For I fully expect and I hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ. I love this phrase. Whether I live or I die. Here's what he says. If I live, I'm going to bring honor to God by the way that I live. And if I die, then I'm going to bring honor to God by the way that I die. For me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. Another translation says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. Let me go back to verse 21 real quick. For to me, living means living for Christ. Do you see how ominously close two words are paired in this verse? Living dying you see how close they're only separated by like a comma and a couple words and isn't that really the reality in life isn't life and death just the line between them is just whisper thin isn't it some people get to see their death approaching right they see decline they see decay they see it coming and then there are others who don't see it coming at all And they realize how whisper thin the line is between living and dying. Those concepts are so welded together in our minds, you can't really fully appreciate what life is unless you also consider what death is. And you can't really fully understand what death represents unless you can understand life. It's like life and death have been welded together in this world that we occupy. I would like to say that, glory to God, there is a place where life and death are not welded together. There is a place where life reigns supreme, where there is no death. And that's what heaven is. Heaven is a place where there's life, everlasting, no death, no sorrow. But in this world that we occupy, living and dying are welded together. Here's where I want to go this morning. I want you to understand that if you and I, let me say it this way. I recently turned, like last week, I turned 40. And uh, one of you cheered. I was not cheering. When you're 40, you start talking like Eeyore all the time. It doesn't matter anymore. Things are important. I'm not as young as I used to be. I don't want to celebrate. I don't want a cake. I'll just get fat and heavy, and I'll have to work twice as hard. No bother, you know. 40 is really not all that bad. (laughs) Here's what happens, though. People are like, do you feel different? No, but here's what I've noticed at 40 more than probably at any of the other, like, milestone birthdays. I value things different at 40 than I did at 30. I value things different. Some of you, as you age, you will recognize this. Things take on different value 
as you age. It's not that the things change, your perspective towards them change. Like when I was my son's age, Christmas was all about getting presents. That's what I valued. Like even so, like even, I mean, as, as much fun as my son had on Christmas morning opening things up, he gets the last package and he's like, okay, is that all? I'm like, dude, you just tore up the whole house. I wrapped everything. We wrapped till we ran out of wrapping. No, we only gave him three presents. But you know, like he's, it was all about the getting of the presents and that's not bad. Can I tell you at 40, I don't value unwrapping presents for myself like I used to. In fact, I didn't unwrap presents on Christmas morning. I gave presents, and I enjoyed that, and I didn't feel like any sense of loss. I value things differently. It's not like at this point, it's like I'm looking at people in life to give me what I don't have. I'm in a different place in life now. I value things differently. My dad and I, we don't talk often. We're working on our relationship. It's a little bit strained, but we had an occasion to, to talk this week. We got together and talked for a little while. And he was reflecting on what he would have done different if he, you know, could go back and raise us all over again. But see, my dad had me when he was 19. You know, I am half my dad's age and, oh, I'm, I'm, no, I'm, I'm two-thirds my dad's age and half my grandparents' age. They all had their kids young and I was the oldest. My dad was 19 when he had me. I was 36 when I had my son. At 19, if I would have had Chase, like my dad says, I wish I would have spent more time with you and doing this. Look, at 19... I was in a different season of life. If I would have had Chase at 19, I wouldn't have been able to spend as much time with him as I do now. I was in my so-to-grow season of life. My wife and I had to both work full-time and then some just to make ends meet, to get out of debt, to pay off our student loans. Do what we had to do. We had to hustle and grind all the time. That's what we had to do. Not that we don't do that now, but I'm in a different place at 40. I recognize what my son needs from me right now. He's not necessarily looking at me as his meal ticket. He's looking at me for the quality, undivided time that I can give to him. And you see, I value my time differently at 40 than I did at 30. Because at 40, or at 50 or 60, wherever you get, at 40, I don't think I'm as immortal as I did when I was 30. I'm evaluating my life through a different lens than I did at 30. At 30, it was how much debt do I have? How much, you know, where are we at career-wise? How much more money can we make? What do I need to do to advance myself, take better care of my family? How can we? I mean, my wife and I were talking, look, the reality is our household income will be less at 40 than it was at 30, but I feel like I'm miles ahead because of good decisions we made in our life. Because the decisions we made at 30, I can value things different now because right now I don't value max, you know, like, you know, hey, you know, if, if we can make it that my wife can stay home and spend quality time with my son, we'll live on less. We'll live on less house, less car, less this, because we don't get these year back. I wouldn't have thought that way at 30, I think that way at 40. Because things change. My perspective on things change. It's not for you, it's for me. That's how I value my life. I'll answer for that, you won't. But if you really want to say, how do I evaluate my life biblically? Here's what Paul says. There's really two things. There's really only two things that we need to evaluate the effectiveness of our life. It's the big idea, and that's what Paul talks about. The big idea is that in order to evaluate the effectiveness of any person's life, we really only need to examine two areas, how they live and how they die. The big question is, how am I living? That's what Paul was going after here. This is deep stuff. I realize it's holiday week, right? (laughs) But this is extremely important. In fact, I can't really think of any more important topic for you and I, because it's a time of year we get contemplative. We reflect back on the year, right? Some of y'all made goals in January, how much weight you were going to lose on that treadmill you bought that you've already sold on Craigslist. (laughs) That gym membership you haven't used since January right? We think back at the beginning of the year, all these goals we set for ourselves physically. I'm going to lose this much weight. I'm going to go to the doctor this many times. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, 
you know, financially, I'm going to get out of this debt. I'm going to save more money. I'm going to give more to the church. I'm going to do this, there, the other thing. I'm going to pay off this bill. We're going to add this to the house. We're going to get out of our apartment and do this or that or whatever. We make goals for relationships. We make goals for our job. And now we sit and we look and we're either really happy or we're really depressed. We either hit all our goals and then some or we didn't make our goals, right? We look back. We're contemplative. We look ahead, though, to next year. I can't think of a more important time for you and me. I'm not telling you how to think. I want to give you the tools to process what you're thinking biblically. Okay? Here's what Paul says really matters. Here's what he was doing in Philippians chapter 1. He was trying to answer the question, how am I living and how will I die? Now, he doesn't have a death wish. This is not suicidal talk. This is not him contemplating ending his life. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to convince you that you ought to play God and end your life, which is the most selfish act any human being could do, because basically what you're saying is, I'm going to decide what I deserve, and I'm going to penalize everybody else and make them have to live with the grief of what I did. God's goal is not for you to end your life. God's goal is to give you life and let you live life to the full. So he's not speaking morbidly here what he's saying if you really read through the whole entirety of philippians chapter one here's what paul's saying he's weighing out who would stand to benefit most when he dies or if he lives and here's his conclusion paul says i've concluded that if i live or i'm sorry he's concluded if i die it's to my benefit because what i really want is to leave earth and be with jesus that's what i really want So I would benefit the most if I die. And he says, I desire to be there, not to end his life, but to give up his life and say, Jesus, you can take me home whenever you're ready because I want to be with you. And that trumped his desire to stay on the earth. And he thinks some more and he says, but if I stay on earth and if I'm alive, he says, it's to your benefit, the people who were reading it at the time, the Christians he was discipling. He said, because if I stay here, you you would lose out because I've been your spiritual father and your spiritual mentor. You learn a lot from me. He said, if I stay here, it's to your benefit because I can continue to disciple you and help you grow spiritually. And here's his concluding statement. He says, my goal is to honor the Lord, period. I want to live for Christ. So if I live, I'm going to live to honor the Lord. And if I die, I'm going to die to honor the Lord. So whether I live or die, I honor the Lord. Romans 14, 8, he writes a similar thing. He says, whether we, he says if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, to die we die to the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we die for the Lord. So really what he's saying in so many words is, I want to live for Christ. I want to die for Christ. So today we're not going to talk about how we're going to die. That's just really morbid, and we don't get to decide that anyway. We're going to tackle the first one this week and next week. What does it mean really to live for Christ? If I want to evaluate my life, I'm asking myself, am I living for Christ? That's what Paul said. To me, living means living for Christ. So here's my question. Are you living for Christ? I want to really go after that word for little tiny three-letter word. But I want to tell you what, we need to go after, what does it, how do I know if I'm living for Christ? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about living for Christ means living for, it means living through, it means living in, and it means living against. All of those things. If you're going to live for Christ, you must live for, you must live through, you must live in, and you must live against. This week, we're going to start with living for, what it really means to live for Christ. So when you notes, living for Christ means to live for, to live through, to live in, to live against. For, through, in, and against. 
So number one, living for. What does it mean to live for someone or something? What does it mean to live for someone? What does that really mean? If you were to kind of try and define that word for, for means to the benefit of or in favor of. That's what it means. If I'm for you, I'm on your side. I'm in favor of you. My son tries to get my wife and I to be pitted against each other at different times. He wants me to be for him and against my wife. That doesn't go well in the Nower house. I have learned enough that there is a pecking order. She comes first. He comes second. That's how it works. <laughs> my loyalty goes there first. He's three and he's already figured this out. If I can just, if I don't like her answer, maybe I can go to him and he'll think differently. And, uh, you know, when you're, when you're for somebody, You're in favor of them. Living for Christ means to live to the benefit of and in favor of Jesus Christ. So let me ask you a question. What do you live for? Who do you live for? Whose life do you exist to benefit? Whose life do you live in favor of? You know, it's interesting. You watch some of these award shows like the Grammys or the Emmys, or I like sports. I watch the ESPYs. You'll see these athletes and celebrities step up to the platform, and they'll give these acceptance speeches. And they're very interesting. Many of them go viral. Some of them are offensive and uncomfortable. But you get some interesting windows into people's lives when they accept these awards. And if you listen carefully, most of them will tell you what they live for. Or for whose benefit or to whose credit they do what they do. You'll hear some people give thanks to God. You'll hear other people give thanks to mentors. You'll hear other people talk about what really motivated them and drove them to get to the point where they were where they win this award. Ask, ask a father. Ask a father, why do you work as hard as you do? What do you do it for? Why do you go into work when you don't have to? Why do you take extra shifts when you're not required to. Ask a father why. They'll tell you what they do it for. Their answers may vary, but things you might hear is, I do it to make extra money for my wife, for my kids, for my family, to give them advantages. I don't do it so that I can have the things that I want. I do it for them. That's what they do it for. Ask a mother, why on earth did you decide to tackle raising a child? It's hard. It's so hard. Why do you do that? Why do you spend 150 hours a week trying to raise your child or your children? They'll say, well, I don't do it for my health or because it makes me feel good or because the pay is great or because I get a lot of thanks. I do it for my kids. I do it for, you know, my family. Why do you live? What do you do it for? For whose life or whose benefit? Paul says, for me, living means living for Christ. You know, the reality is, we didn't come into the world living for Christ. You need to understand that. We did not come into this world living for Christ. When a believer was first born into this world, before we were a believer, we were born as a slave to sin, just like everybody else. Look, no one had to teach Chase Andrew Nower when he came into the world to live for himself. No one had to teach him that when you don't get what you want, Here's what you do. Scream really loud. And don't use any words. Just keep screaming until we we figure it out and you get what you want. Nobody had to teach him how to do that. It's just like he came into the world wired to make everything else cater to him. And you and I came into the world no different. 
You and I came in the world a slave to sin, wanting what we want first, just like everybody else did, unless and until you and I submit our life to Jesus Christ, until the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin and our deep need for a Savior, of our lostness, until He makes us aware of that vacuum in our life, until the Holy Spirit reveals to us Jesus Christ as the slaughtered, suffering Son of God, hanging on the cross, bleeding and dying for our sins, until the Holy Spirit reveals to us that He actually raised from the dead and He's alive today and we accept Him and confess Him to be delivered and to be saved and be transformed, until that point, we're just slaves to sin. But at that point, we start to live for Christ. That's when we begin. We didn't start living for Christ at birth. We start when we make a decision to follow Him. So what does living for Christ really, really mean? It means two things. It means more than that. I'll give you two. It means, number one, Christ is my model. Now, every time I use that word model now, I'm going to have this image of Paul Maldives wearing an echo jacket. He told me, he said, we had a record. Yeah, he's clapping for himself. He said, we've had a record number of Echo Jackets ordered this morning. I'm like, yeah, he is the, he is the fashion icon. Paul Maldives fashion icon. It means that Christ is my model. If I'm going to live for Christ, I can't have another example in my life that trumps Jesus. But I think if we got really painfully honest with ourselves, that would be true for so few of us because we're patterning our life after somebody or something else and that trumps Christ in our life. Every human being probably has a role model. I'm not saying role models are bad at all. In fact, didn't Paul say, follow me? Right? But he didn't finish the sentence there. (laughs) He said, follow me as I follow Christ. In other words, he's saying what sets me apart as a trustworthy spiritual leader is not just my example, but he's like, I'm going to follow Christ so closely that if you get in line behind me, by default, you're going to be following Jesus because I'm not going to veer from that path to the left or to the right. That's how you know you can trust a spiritual leader. How close do they follow Jesus? Do they think they know more than the Bible teaches about something? Be careful. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. Most of us have a role model and example by which we pattern our life after. Paul says, pretty much, if you ask me by which manner I fashion or shape my life or how I mold my life, he says, there's no other fashion, there's no other shape, there's no other example, there's no other mold other than Jesus Christ. That is the way that I pattern my life, the way that I think, the way that I behave, the way that I give, the way I treat people I like, the way I treat people I don't, how I budget my money, how I budget my time, how I give my life away. I model it after Jesus Christ. There is nobody else. There is nothing else. In fact, he eschewed most of the other role models in his life and patterned his life only after Jesus. And here's the thing. In the world in which we live, we live, people would never dare to do something unless everybody else does the same. We don't often ask, is this the right thing to do? We typically ask, well, does so-and-so do it? We have some great person in our family or within our connections who's looked upon as being the very standard of all holiness and moral uprightness. And if she does it or if he does it, we feel like we can safely do it. You know what I pray for? I pray that God would raise up a righteous group of hungry disciples who would steadfastly hold to Jesus Christ as the only model for our character, for our behavior, for our opinions, for our politics, for our ethics, then we would reject everything that doesn't conform to Christ. And we could say, for me to live truly is not to imitate this man or that woman, but for me to live is Christ. Listen, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what your spiritual leader does or doesn't do or what the person... What does Jesus have to say on the matter? 
That's your pattern. That's your model. That's what you and I should be striving for. For you to say that you live for Christ, you have to say, he is my example. But secondly, you have to be able to say, Christ is the sole motivation of my life. Christ is the driving force, the sole motivation of my life. We're going to talk about motives for just a moment as we conclude this morning. I'll end here. We'll pick up points two, three, and four next week. I'm going to end on this one. Talking about motives is really, really, really messy. Because truly, what you learn here and what Jesus went after in the Sermon on the Mount is this. You can do the right thing for the wrong reason and it's still wrong. In fact, Jesus goes after a lot of the time, not the action, but the heart that drives the action. Basically, he says all these things are symptoms and or evidence of what's really in your heart. All of your, all of your actions and behaviors are extensions of the invisible part of you. He says things like, out of the abundance of the heart, your mouth speaks. So the next time you say, I'm sorry that I said it, I didn't really mean it. Yeah, you did. You just couldn't shut your mouth in time. It was really in your heart, unless you're an anomaly, unless you have a separate engine that drives your mouth, that's disconnected from your brain, your brain and your heart tell your mouth what to do. You meant it, you just couldn't stop yourself. The problem isn't your mouth, it's your heart, Jesus says. In fact, he says, some of you go to great lengths to do all of the right things, but you're doing it for all of the wrong reasons because your motivation is not Christ. Your motivation is your own pride. He says, I'm glad a lot of you give. And you give a lot of money. But you know why you give, he says? You give so people will think you're generous because you like people thinking you're generous. They treat you different. They look up to you. And he says, if you do that, just don't expect to get a reward from God. Oh, you get a reward. Because see, here's the thing. Even when you do the right thing for the wrong reasons, you still get rewarded. You just get rewarded from people. And you better enjoy it because that's all the rewards you're going to get. When you get to heaven, you're going to be disappointed. Because a lot of things that you're doing, you're doing for the wrong reasons. And the only reward you're getting is the shine that you get from people. And you're going to get to heaven and God's going to be like, yeah, you did this, but you did it for the wrong reasons. So you already got your reward. So I guess you didn't want mine. Read the Bible. That's what it says. There's two judgments that those of us as Christians will face. Judgment of whether or not I knew Jesus, yes. And then we will be evaluated for how much reward we will receive in heaven. We don't talk about that one a lot, but we need to. That's why I live the way that I live, because I'm focused on eternity. You can take all this from me. I'm storing away something you can't touch. But that means you have to do the right thing for the right reasons. Jesus said, I'm glad a lot of you pray. You pray out loud in church with big theologically weighty words on microphones. You pace back and forth. Everybody looks at you and you're like, oh man, if I could just pray like him. And he says, that's the reward you're getting. You're not praying because you really want to touch God. You're praying because you want people to think you're really spiritual and look up to you that way. So enjoy it. That's the reward you get. He says, a lot of you fast. I'm glad that you fast. We're going to fast in January. We're going to take 21 days and go on a fast together if you want to. But he says, some of you like to fast and you draw attention to yourself. You don't wash your face. You walk around all tired. And when people talk to you, they say, why do you look so tired? Well, I've been fasting. 
They just, you know, I just. <laughs> Been eating lentils for two weeks and I'm doing it for the Lord. He deserves it. He's my joy and my strength. <laughs> the Eeyore again, right? He says, that's a great thing to fast. It's a great thing to pray. It's a great thing to give. But if you do it for the wrong reasons, no blessing for you. He says, what I reward is what's in the secret place while you're doing this. It's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, I look into the secret place and see, here's the thing. It should be good news for a lot of us, but it's bad news for some of us. God sees the secret things in your heart. He says, I look. Oh, if you can get this. Let me try and say it. He says, I look at the secret place to bless you. That's where I go. I'm not just looking at all the actions. I'm looking at the heart behind the actions. You see, here's the beautiful thing. He says, I look to the secret place. The God see who, when God sees what's in secret, it says he will reward you and bless you openly. So here's the question for you and for me. I want you to get this. Is there anything in your secret place that is rewardable? Is there anything in the quiet place of your heart that is blessable? Or is that the place you try and file away all the yuck, all the selfish, all the pride, all the underlying motives? And when God goes in there, he says, I love you as my child, but I can't bless you with your heart filled with these things. You see, to live for Christ means that my sole motive for why I do what I do is to honor and benefit Jesus Christ. And that means if my heart is right and the action (laughs) might not come out quite the way that I intended, but my heart was right, guess what? I still get blessed. We're so much focused on the perception of the action that we skip over the motive of our heart. Paul says, for me, living means living for Christ. And I realize that sounds ridiculous. If I sit down and talk to people, and I do from time to time, I'll sit down with young executives who are on the fast track to an exposition. I listen to them and talk, and they would say, for me to live is wealth. It's a little bit more. And listen, you don't have, I've said this before, i say it again. You don't have to have wealth to chase wealth. You don't have to have wealth to be materialistic. You just have to think you have to have wealth to be somebody to be materialistic. And I've always said this too. God doesn't care if you have things. He just cares if those things have you. You have all the things you want. As long as they don't have you, God can trust you with it. But some of us, God couldn't trust us with those things. Because they'd have us. But for some say, for me, living is wealth. Others would say, listen, man, I just have to scratch and claw to make it to the end of my month to have more balance than bills at the end of the month. For me, to live is to get from paycheck to paycheck, to eke out a meager existence for myself. Around here, there are tons of colleges. People come from all over the world to this area to study and to learn. And it's very intimidating. Look, I came from South Georgia. I have a college degree and then a little bit more beyond that. I was by far the most educated person down there. <laughs> like in my church, in my, the county where I youth pastored for five years, our graduation rate there was 30%. Seven out of every 10 kids that was a freshman did not finish high school. I had a college degree. I was like the genius down there. I moved back here. Like my barista down here at Starbucks has like a master's working on their doctorate. And I don't mean to diminish what it is. I'm just saying, you know, this part of the country values education a little bit more differently from down there. But what happens though is that we make that our sole motivation. I live to learn. I live to be educated. 
to always get that next thing. That's what really, really, really drives me. My best friend in the world is a special operations soldier. He's in a country right now. I can't tell you where he is. Um, watch the news. You'll figure out he's in charge of something over there. He answers directly to, to the president now. He's pretty elite in what he does. And uh, I've met some of his buddies before. And I listen to them talk about their stories. I can't participate, but I will tell you for many of them, they say, I live for the glory of this. I live for glory, honor and glory. And Paul would saddle up to all these people. You say, for me to live is Christ. And they look at him like he's crazy. He tells us, if someone asks you why you live or what motivates you, you say Christ, they'll look at you like you're crazy. Because you have some people that say, how in the world is following Jesus ever going to get you a place of financial peace? Well, for $105, we'll tell you. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, nailed it. The whole message was for that. No, I'm just kidding. But they look at it like you're crazy. People look at me as a pastor. What motivates you? Well, well, following Jesus. Well, how are you going to take care of your family as a pastor? How are you going to be able to financially? They look at it like it's ridiculous, like doing this ministry or missionary thing is just financially reckless. Other people say, really? That's not intellectually responsible. Have you really thought deeply about all the problems? You know, the, the real learned education people say, well, smart people, educated. Christianity is for the people of the intellectually weak. It's not for people that really have it all together. They're really studied and educated, Right? You have all these different, other people say, what glory is there in following a person who came as a slave and died on a cross and executioner's death? What glory is there in that? And yet Paul would say, and we need to say, for me, living is living for Christ. And we're the wisest of them all. Because we understand that all those things are empty in and of themselves. But the true motivation for why we do what we do has to be Christ. I know what some of you are thinking. Because there's many of us who call ourselves Christians. We give to the church. We serve. We lead ministries. We sing. We play instruments. We load in. We load out. We evangelize. We share our faith. Here's a question I have for you. Are you really doing all those things for Christ all the time? Really? Really? Now I realize when we're talking about motives, they're usually a combination of things. It's like mixing ingredients together, and you can't, once you mix those ingredients together, you can't separate them back out again. It's difficult to do. There might be some pride in there. There might be some good in there and something else here, and you mix them all together, and the recipe is what it is. It's difficult once you get a recipe together to peel things back out. We had a hot chocolate contest at HQ this week, and uh, there's a few of you who know where I'm going with this. Uh, Havila had this recipe for salted caramel hot chocolate. And she, you know, was following the recipe, and she got the measuring cups out. It's like, you know, a cup and a half of sugar. So she takes a canister and pours it in there and mixes it in before the other half. And she's mixing it all together, and she's getting it all together. And she starts tasting it, and she's, she's getting quiet over there. And she's not really excited about how it's tasting. She's like, can one of you guys taste this? And, like, James tastes it. He's like, that is, wow, that is, uh, you know, salt, salty. And, uh, and I taste it, and I'm like, wow, I could exfoliate my entire insides with this. <laughs> And she's like, she's like stirring and stirring, trying to figure it out. What am I going to do? And, you know, she, you know, I mean, it's five minutes before the contest, and she's like trying to mix it. And then she goes, then I, I'm in the other room, and I hear her go, oh. And I walk out there, and she's holding the canister. She's like, I thought this was sugar. It was actually the salt canister. And here, where it had called for a cup and a half of sugar, she had put a cup and a half of salt into the very salted caramel mocha. 
What she could not do at that point was extract the salt. All she could do is try and add other things to it. Somehow she still won. I don't know how she won. Um, That's how bad our hot chocolate was. But (laughs) they preferred that to the other, and everybody's insides were shiny and clean. And it's difficult to try and sit back and say, I'm trying to peel this part of my motive out once it's already been combined with all the other ingredients. But you know, I think if we're really honest, maybe some of the good things that we're doing still have a lot of self injected into it. We do it to feel good about ourselves for people to see us serving because the pastor made us feel guilty because our wife bugged us into doing it. Because it, do you really? Well, pastor, I work as hard as I do for Christ. Really? The whole time you're at work, you're thinking about how to honor Christ. You're not chasing wealth or advancement. Really? Well, pastor, are those things bad? No. Unless you say you're living for Christ. And then, they, then they're troublesome. Because all those things are a subset of living for Christ. If I'm living for Christ, the reason I spend the time with my son is not to feel like a good dad. is because I'm living for Christ. And he evaluates me on how I raise my son. The reason I'm the husband that I am and trying to be better is because he evaluates me on how I love my wife. Do I love her like he loves me? If I'm going to know how to love her, I better walk close to him. Right? All those things are not evil in and of themselves, but if you do it outside of Christ, you're doing it for the wrong reason. If I do it through Christ, which is the next point, those things all get roped in together in the way that we live. Now, here's, here's the question I've got to leave you with. We'll close with this today. Have you gotten anywhere close to the place where Paul stood when he said, for me, living, living means for Christ, living for Christ? Have you gotten anywhere close to that? Have I gotten anywhere close to that? Don't we all need to rebuke ourselves from time to time when we realize we haven't lived for Christ like we should have? I don't mean beating yourself up over and over and over again and focusing only where you fell short. That leads to depression. And only focusing on how good you are leads to arrogance. We have to be able to look at both things. We want to look at the progress that we've made and where we're still trying to go. I got to tell you, I mean, I have to do the same thing as a pastor. People ask me, what do you do on Sunday afternoons? I say, well, I usually go home and try and convince myself it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. That's what I usually do. Pastor, you shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't do that, and I do it less frequently. That's part of putting yourself out there and talking about things. But I will tell you, I can get over some of my own insecurities. The times where I really have to sit back and I have to repent is there are times when I'd say, was I more concerned about preaching a masterpiece today than I was about telling the truth? Did I hold back a harsh word or something I think the Scripture was really trying to say that might have been a correction or a rebuke or a discipline because I was afraid of how people might take it? I was afraid of offending somebody that might walk out of the church because I said it? Was I more concerned about making some really nifty points today, a big idea and three points that really flowed together well that people would say that was a really great message than I was about just spinning out the simple truth of the Word of God? There's times I have to step back and rebuke my own self for saying, I didn't live entirely for Christ today. But in those moments, you know what I find? I find He is gracious. He is merciful. He is forgiving. He loves to hear us confess our need for Him. I just say, God, I I blew it. (laughs) I messed up today. I fell short. Will you forgive me? And He... (laughs) Like he says in 1 John 1, 9, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. He forgives us of our sins. He cleanses us from our unrighteousness and he gives us a do-over. I love do-overs. I've golfed like three times. I love mulligans. 
poor Mark Deanna took me golfing one time. Probably will never do that again. But I mean, I, I need lots and lots and lots of do-overs when it comes to golf. I even need more do-overs when it comes to life. That doesn't mean it's an excuse for sloppy living, but it means when we recognize we've fallen short, we don't need to beat ourselves up there. Where have you fallen short in living for Christ today? I invite our worship team to come forward. I want to give you some time just to think about this today. They're going to just conclude with a song. They're going to come and, and lead us in a song. I'm going to give you a chance to think about this today. Where have you fallen short? Where have you fallen short in your life and your desire to live for Christ? This is a safe place for you to be honest with that. If you really are a follower of Jesus, if you truly are a disciple, here's what I know. You want to follow Jesus. If you would say, you know, Pastor, I'm not so sure if I really want to follow Jesus. I would say to you, okay, thank you for being honest. But you're not, what you also have to ground in, you're not a true disciple. If you don't have a desire to follow Jesus, you are not. You're not following Jesus. Sometimes our want to gets broken. That's a problem in the will. And that's not something that God comes and pulverizes. It's something you surrender. So let me speak to those of us who say, I am a follower of Jesus, unapologetically committed to following Jesus. Can you gently ask God to reveal to you where, where have you fallen short? Where are you falling short? And then just confess it to him right where you're at. God, I'm sorry for being short with my temper. God, I'm sorry for being selfish with my own needs sometimes and putting it above others. I'm sorry for this, for having just a, just a bitterness in my heart towards this person or for not being able to let go of my own mistakes in the past. I'm sorry for not supporting my husband like I want to. I'm sorry for getting into a relationship I shouldn't be in. God, I'm falling short of the example of your son there. Just confess it to him. I will tell you, confession is healthy. When you ask him to forgive you, he does. Forgiveness happens in a moment. Repentance, though, is an action. It's a process. Repent means to turn away from. That's an action step on your part. That's the follow-up to confession. In other words, you can come to God every day and say, God, I'm sorry that I blew it today, and then have no intention of your mind to change that and just go right back and do the same thing callously over and over and over again. That also indicates you're not following Jesus closely. You're cheapening his grace. Some of us, we just need that help to be transformed so that those desires deep inside of us change. So this morning, God, we do confess to you our need of you. Please forgive us where we've fallen short. We repent from those things and we want to make changes in our life. We want to be able, the testimony of our life, to say the way that I lived is I lived for Christ. All across this room, with every head bowed, every eye closed, I want to give you an opportunity right now in the privacy of this moment to make a decision to follow Jesus if you haven't. I want to speak to those of you who would say, I, I'm, I'm not a follower of Christ or I'm not sure if I am. I want you to understand something. You're not here by coincidence this morning. You are here because when you were formed in your mother's womb, God knew that on this particular day in December of 2015, you'd sit in Perry Hall High School Auditorium and you'd be given an opportunity in this moment right now. He knew that. He knew you'd have an opportunity right now to accept him or to not accept him. That's your choice. 
But if you want to have right relationship with God, if you want to be made new, if you want to be forgiven from your past, if you want to be unburdened from the guilt of having to figure out life on your own, if you want to be assured of your place forever with God in heaven and you want to live the empowered life that God's given for you, that's right in front of you right now. Here's what God asks. You must confess with your mouth that Jesus, his son, truly is Lord of all. And you have to believe in your heart that he rose from the dead. Because if you believe he rose from the dead, that also means you believe he did live a real life. He did actually physically die on the cross for your sins and he did raise from the dead. Believing in the resurrection includes all those other things wrapped up in it. If you really believe in those things and that belief will bubble up in you confessing it with your mouth to God, that's all you have to bring to him to indicate you want him in your life. So if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer right now. You can just simply pray, Dear Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you rose from the dead. And I believe that I have sinned and fallen short of the standard you've set for me. Please forgive me of my sins. And I invite you to take possession of me. Come live in me. I I see you as my Lord and as my Savior. And I will follow you the very best that I can all the days of my life. I look forward to the transformation you're going to produce in me. In your name I pray. Amen.